Friday is the end of the beginning for the General Services Administration's years-long effort to develop the OASIS Plus Professional Services contract. After two years of planning, meetings, feedback, and answering almost 900 questions about the final solicitations, vendors' bids are due. Tiffany Hickson is GSA's Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Professional Services and Human Capital Categories in the Federal Acquisition Service. She tells Federal News Network's Executive Editor Jason Miller about why she is cautiously optimistic about moving forward into source selection for Oasis Plus. Friday is when proposals are due and we do not plan on extending the proposal due date. And I'd like to remind those that may not be participating this time around or find out about the opportunity later is that it's not a one and done. Once we get done with the initial source selections for Oasis Plus, we will be reopening the solicitations and plan to leave those open for most of uh, the program's life cycle. So that's a pretty unique feature of this IDIQ contract. And I'm not really sure that message has really gotten out completely. Um, so I do like to remind our industry partners or really down the road for those new companies, right, that are coming into the federal market, that all was not lost uh, once we got through the initial source selection for uh, Oasis Plus. But back to big week. Uh, everyone has worked really hard. And when I mean everyone, I mean not just my team, but also uh, industry, starting with the working group. There was a special working group stood up to provide us with feedback um, over the last two years from ACT IAC that was led by Kim Pack. And there was a really a lot of good debate and feedback that was provided to us uh, in terms of the acquisition strategy. And we took most of uh, that, those recommendations. There were um, a couple of recommendations in particular related to how the contract was structured vis-a-vis -vis small business and unrestricted businesses and how we were going to tee that up. I think we ended up picking a strategy that reflected at least half the group's recommendations. And I think that was really the small business group side of the house, their recommendations. We also, over the last two years, we have had hundreds of uh, industry and agency stakeholder engagements, workshops, one-on-one -on -one discussions, briefings with frontline people, with senior leaders across government and standing up um, the program, uh, both in terms of how the acquisition strategy was structured, but how we're going to manage it post-award. We've published 23 program updates, two draft RFPs. We had three uh, industry days with probably more than 3,000 participants in each one of those industry days. We issued six requests for proposals. We've had lots of survey feedback. We issued a number of surveys and got feedback through those channels. And actually, we answered more than 1,900 uh, questions between our drafts and the final RFPs. We've had office hours, training sessions in terms of how to use our uh, offer management to our proposal management tool. And just to round it out, we've also had solicitation protests. So it has not <laughs> been boring and industry has been actively engaged uh, through all of those phases of the procurement cycle to get us to where we're at this week. Well, I think that's good news that uh, there's no plans to extend it. And I know we still have a couple of days. So, uh, Tiffany, we'll, we'll leave it. Knock on wood, we'll, right? we'll leave you exactly that, that ability to change your mind just in case. Uh, let's, but let's talk about two things that, that I think you, you touched upon that folks may want to know. When you uh, look, talk about all those questions, and I, I think I counted it over, well over 800 questions 
You said you answered over 1,900 questions for the life of this uh, effort so far. Anything stand out to you about the questions you receive from industry around the final RFPs? Is there any trends you would point to? I think there were a couple of themes as we got through the acquisition lifecycle. One is I think there is still a lot, even for us, a lot of confusion around how we evaluate joint ventures, small business teams who are coming together as primes as part of the source selection process. And so we had a lot of questions in that space. If you're coming in as a small business team with primes, how does their experience count, right, against our evaluation criteria? We had, even in terms of our JV language, we thought we got that right. Then there was a court of federal claims case um, that was related to a different procurement that GSA was running that impacted the language that we had in our initial solicitation or draft solicitation uh, that we had to update. The judge provided us with some feedback. We're like, oh, okay, well, let's go back and nuance that based on uh, the judge's findings in, in that case. So we've had a lot of questions in that space. And how do we structure our proposal management tool right to reflect all of that complexity to allow for um, whether it's a, a JV, non-mentor, protege, mentee, protege, just standalone JVs, small business teams. Like how do you set all that up in an online tool so everyone can claim the credit that they're due? A lot of complexity in that space for us and for industry. And, and I think after slogging through this, right, together over the summer, we're at the, at the right place. But that, I would say, is primarily where we've had a lot of discussions. Um, also, I think because this procurement is taking a slightly different approach than other um, GWACs and MACs in government, I think there it's just been hard for industry, I think, to understand, like, hey, this is not a uh, a traditional best value trade-off. It is here are the technical requirements that if you meet those technical requirements and you have a fair and reasonable price, you can be selected along with being responsible and those types of things. You can be selected for an award. We are not capping the number of awards. And I think um, that's a huge differentiator between uh, this program and others. It's really probably a test for GSA. But I think for industry, I think it's been hard for them to go, oh, yeah, that's a thing, right? I need to focus on making sure that I'm showing that I'm qualified or our company is qualified or our team is qualified. I don't need to worry about uh, competition from another company uh, in that kind of way, right? Um, so I think we spent most of our time focused in those two areas. The two things I just want to touch upon real quick, uh, one is the Symphony tool. You mentioned that as a proposal tool. And and um, there was a recent, uh, lack of a better word, we'll put this in quotes, incident uh, around mm -hmm. uh, Symphony. I want to give you some time to talk about that because I think I, I got a copy of the email that was sent out to people using Symphony. And mm -hmm. there was a lot of, whoa, what's this mean? And then then soon after that, uh, which, is, which is the question I asked GSA as well, was the delay in proposals due to this problem, this potential cyber or data incident. So catch us up on what's going on. The security incident didn't have anything to do with the extension of the proposal due date. For Oasis Plus, 
there was a way that companies could get credit and it was kind of a, a niche way that they could get credit depending on how they were positioned. And we didn't have a place in Symphony for companies to put in like, hey, we want to take advantage of getting a point, right, for our technical experience in this area. So we actually had to update the software to allow for companies to take that credit. And like I said, it was just one way that you could get credit from a technical perspective. So we actually had to extend the proposal due date to allow us to build that into the tool so companies could then come in and get credit. And when you change software, right, you got to change it, you got to do the code, you got to do the testing, there's security stuff, right? So it took us a couple of weeks to get through that. And then we wanted to give industry time to be able to, to take advantage of that if that's what they wanted to do. We had Yes, we have lots of offers already coming in, so we can see that that is is going well. Uh, the security incident that happened was reported to us by a potential offerer um, that felt that there was a security vulnerability in the tool. And clearly, we take that pretty seriously. We're in the middle of a source election. And so we immediately you know, talked to our CISO and got our CIO and that team uh, involved in looking at what that report said. We did a deep dive with our software provider, along with our IT security experts, and we actually just finished the, the final. We did an initial review, actually didn't see any breach of data at all that we could see in the system. And um, that was based on logs, records, you know, all the good things that happen in a well-rounded and secure tool. <laughs> so that was kind of an initial uh, relief. So we continued to leave the tool open. There was a small vulnerability in particular for, it was actually government account managers. So we closed that vulnerability. And right now, if you're going to go in and set up uh, an account, our help desk will actually reach out to you um, and ask for some additional validation, verific identity verification information to make sure that you are who you say who you are um, before we will give you an account. Tiffany Hickson, GSA's Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Professional Services and Human Capital Categories in the Federal Acquisition Service, speaking at a recent ACT-IAC event moderated by Federal News Network's Jason Miller. You can find more of Jason's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply That's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture 
because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. 
Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.